Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Shimon Toltz. Hey. Jillian Rowe. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have two special guests. We have Erwin Stahl. I hope I said that right. Yeah, you did. I did. We also have Henry Bean. Hello there. Nice to be here. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Do you guys want to just introduce yourselves, let everybody know why you're famous? Famous? Okay, so you can go first, Erwin. <laughs> He's more famous. Famouser. Well, I was I was going to say, I'm not, not so sure on the famous part, but I, I can introduce myself. Yeah, so my name is Erwin Staal. I'm an Azure architect from the Netherlands, and I uh, work for a consultancy company, uh, Experience. And within that role, I help companies to uh, build awesome stuff in the Azure cloud mainly. Awesome. Henry? So my name is Henry. Um, I work as a Azure and DevOps uh, architect. It means that I work with companies and I try to help them build and launch and operate software in the Azure cloud. In uh, Yeah, that's basically what I do. Oh. Awesome. Well, we brought you on today to talk a bit about Azure infrastructure as code. And uh, it's kind of fun to get the people who literally wrote the book on it, right? So... If you want to just first off, I guess you're both based in Netherlands and uh, your other co-authors also based out there. You want to just give us kind of a background on uh, how you came about writing this book? Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I think it was about a year ago that I got approached by, by Manning, the publisher, for writing a book on uh, ARM templates. And I've, I've given it some thought. And as I've written a book before, one of the things that I learned is that I will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. And if I do it, I will, I will not do it alone. <laughs> and here we are. Within the two minutes, I think we're at this point. Anyhow, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll consider it. But I want to bring two other persons on that I know and that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. And that's how the balls uh, started, started rolling. And uh, the more we got into the topic, the more we decided we don't want to just talk about ARM templates. But we want to try and bring more parts of the Azure Resource Manager into the book. And we created an outline. And Manning did a bit of market research to see if there was, you know, people interested in actually giving us money for writing this book. And apparently they found a few. And fast forward a year and we're, I think, almost done. Nice. So it's in the early access program then? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because if you uh, if you buy the book right now in the Manning early access program, then I think you since last week, you get access to the first seven chapters. Yeah. Out of the 13 that will be in the complete book. And nice. I think there are already three more like lined up, waiting to be released in three weeks, seven weeks, and 11 weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. there's new new stuff coming kind of every month. Yep. 
fool. So pitch it. Why should we buy the book? <laughs> Let me give it a try. So if, if you've been working with Azure for a while, you've encountered this thing called the portal, where you go to create your resources and you click about uh, a lot. And then finally, when you have everything working um, in your test environment, you're happy and you want to go to, I don't know, an acceptance environment and kind of want to make the same changes. And you go starting, you start going back in your memory and, and thinking, well, what, what, what did I do already? One of the things that is very <laughs> difficult is to try and replicate the changes you made in your test environment to your acceptance environment. Besides being hard to remember, it's also very, very dull and boring to repeat everything. And then you have to do it a third time, right? For production. So one of the things that infrastructure as code, which what an ARM template is, allows you to do is, is to, to write a definition for your infrastructure only once and roll it out as many times as you want. So first to your test environment, then to your acceptance environment, and then to your production environment. Uh, and maybe you want to spin up environments whenever you need them and, and you know tear them down whenever you don't need them anymore. But I think that's that's one of the benefits that I as a developer like the most. There are more. But, you know, this repeatable, boring stuff is getting out of my way. I think that also it's like today, it's inevitable. If you run an organization and you want to run the GitOps way where you control all the changes, because if you have people going in a portal, clicking on things, how are you going to know like, what's going on? And are you going to write a procedure, click on this button, click on that button? And I totally get it. I have so many questions for you. Is it the right time to dive deep? Ciao. Yeah, go for it. Ask your question. <laughs> dive in. So dive in. Okay. So I love infrastructure as code. By the way, I do it for a living. Uh, we mainly focus on Kubernetes, but I'm fascinated by uh, codifying everything and controlling it as code. And my question is, uh, I see in your book that you're talking about ARM templates, which I'm familiar with, and bicep templates. Could you educate us on what is a bicep template? And am I saying it correctly? Yeah, you are. So Bicep is, is kind of the new thing, the new kid on the block, again, by Microsoft, like ARM templates. And they are going to replace ARM templates, at least for you as a developer. Because the problem with ARM templates is they are pretty hard to write. It's written in JSON, uh, which makes it pretty pretty hard to, to do it right and to, to write them fast. And to, especially when you do it for a while and things get bigger, then those templates are getting very large. It's it will be hard to maintain them. And Bicep is going to fix that for you. Bicep is a new language, which allows you to, again, declare your infrastructure, like you would do in ARM templates, but then in a very more natural way. If you've ever done a thing with, with Terraform, then it kind of looks like the syntax of, of Terraform. So it's much smaller, much more understandable, and... It's all also at this point in time, it's, it's feature complete compared to ARM templates. And mm -hmm. there actually already are a few nice features in Bicep that you, that aren't available in, in ARM templates. I was wondering, uh, you know, so what is the difference or kind of maybe trade offs that you're making when you're using an ARM versus Terraform template? All right. So if you would have to start today, I wouldn't actually start with ARM templates anymore. I would jump to Bicep right away. Bicep is, is general available for some time now. So if you want to do something new on Azure, then uh, Bicep is a very good opportunity, a very good product to go for. And Terraform, we, we do touch on the Terraform in the book very quickly. And you could, could say that it, it's an alternative to, to doing Bicep, but it's, it, it has pros and, and cons to, to Bicep in that sense. 
I actually work with Terraform at my customer uh, right now, at one of the customers, instead of with Bicep or ARM templates. And one of the things that you have in Terraform is that Terraform manages the state for you. So if you deploy your infrastructure, then Terraform at that point in time will, will store the state in some files. Whereas if you use Bicep, that doesn't happen. Azure is the state. And I've already been getting some headaches from having to work with that state in Terraform. So that's, I would say that's a bit of a downside of Terraform that you actually have to deal with that kind of state. But on the other hand, Terraform goes a bit further than, than Bicep's uh, template ever could, since Terraform can be used for multiple cloud environments, not just Azure, but also uh, AWS or Google. But you could even manage, for example, your DNS records at your DNS provider with Terraform if they have support in Terraform. So where Azure, oh, Bicep is purely Azure, uh, Terraform is can be used in other scopes as well. I'm really curious about this. Oh, You're saying sorry, there's Julie. no state. Oh, sorry, um, just there, there's no state is bugging me. How does that work? Like, how do you do things? Like, I need to create something and then I need to create something that depends on the first thing that I created on if it's not keeping track of whether or not the first thing was created or up or, I mean, presumably anything if it's not keeping track of the state. So that's part part of the engine. What what Terraform does is whenever it creates something or it updates something, it does that in the target environment and it does it in its own state. And it and Terraform is responsible for, you know, making sure it, it updates its own state the same way it does the target environment. And then whenever you 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 bring in a new change, Terraform is going to look at its internal state, state cache, and gonna decide if it needs to make an update to the target environment. So it doesn't hit the target environment all the time. What ARM does, it, it hits the target environment all the time. So in Azure, we, we, we have a number of APIs that are responsible for specific resources. And whenever I declare a virtual machine, um, it's going to query that the target environment to see if it's already there and if it's already there, what the properties are. And based on that answer, it's going to issue a create with the right properties or it's going to issue an update with the change properties. So it hits the actual state and not the cached state. Does that help? Oh, okay. Yeah, that helps a lot. I can definitely see that because now I see what you're saying with the hitting funny edge cases in the Terraform state and then just doing the rm-rf star equivalent of deleting the Terraform state and starting over again, right? Yeah. Okay, that's really neat. And you don't have to risk that your Terraform state drifts from the actual state in the target environment, which is a, no, which is a benefit. With me. Okay, yeah. I'm not that good, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> of course, having a Terraform state file helps you in terms of the stability and being able to work against it instead of working with your production environment, which is in, in large deployments. Uh, you know, you don't want all of your developers directly working with your production environment, I guess. So there are trade-offs to, to both, both Absolutely. sides, I, I, d- I don't think it's like... Uh, the one or the other. I think it really depends upon context. I am a big hater of the word best practice. Best practice is just something that worked in context one. We're now just going to try and cram it into context two where it doesn't fit. So I'm a bit cautious of that uh, of that word. So it, yeah, it's going to be pick and choose depending on where you're at. Yep. So I have a question. So you see a lot of organizations, you work with many companies and you all specialize in infrastructure as code. And my question to you is, I would not ask what are the best practices, what are the best ways to <laughs> <laughs> to propagate infrastructure as code responsibilities to developers? <laughs> and uh, so, so like, 
how do how, what is the best way to propagate it because to, in today's world many times you want developers to work fast you you don't want devops teams to be bottlenecks and you want to actually empower your developers to be able to make the changes in a with some sort of guardrails but to be full owners of their application so what are some of the things that you're seeing from the field and you recommend when working with infrastructure as code and developers as a devops team if you want to make sure that that a particular team is not the bottleneck for your infrastructure to be created or updated, then you as a DevOps team should take the creation and, and modification of your infrastructure for your application into your own hands. So that means that as a DevOps team, you write your code, you test your code, but you also write and deploy your own infrastructure. That will allow the teams to make the modifications when they need to and, and deploy them themselves. And if those teams truly work in the DevOps fashion, then they are responsible for kind of whatever they need to do to run their application, both in the test environment, but also in production environment. And of course, especially in larger organizations, you want to make sure that those teams cannot do, cannot do just whatever they want. You probably want to have some, some policies in place, make sure they, they deploy their stuff in a compliant way. So in Azure, you, you can do that. You can make sure that, that teams are empowered to do their own thing, make their own changes, but with some kind of rules to make at least sure it's compliant and secure, etc. Cool. So I have two follow-up questions for that. So I totally agree with you. And there is one point of like, how do you make them deploy things that are compliant, let's say in terms of security or, you know, audits and so on. And then there's the second thing of like, you know, maybe I'm the best Java payment engineer, but maybe I'm not an expert on, you know, ARM, build pipelines and Docker and I don't know, an AKS and so on. And if I take full responsibility, which we believe should, should be done in the DevOps way, how can a DevOps team help me to make the right thing? Because I'm not a DevOps expert. So what should they do in, in this case? How do you recommend them to educate the team? Which tools do you recommend they use in order to adopt infrastructure as code all the way? So I, I think the, the first thing is that sometimes people think that we have to do ev everything as one person, right? I am writing the code. I'm deploying the code. I am writing the infrastructure as code. I'm deploying your infrastructure. Not necessarily the case. We can also bring people with different expertise into our application or component team and then we you know work together i write the code i say that i need a specific i don't know cube topic created and then the person comes in and together we sit down and we write the infrastructure as code he having the expertise of knowing arm templates or bicep or terraform whatever and me knowing what i need from a, a development point of view so i think that's the first thing you know bring multiple expertises into one into one team whenever possible and the first question is, how do we get people to do things that are compliant? So I think there are two things. A chapter in the book, I'm, I'm just going to try and pitch the book one more time, is on template specs, which is a repository kind of thing in Azure, which allows you to pick up templates and put them in as a template spec in Azure, ready to use for Teams. So in, so I can say, say to Teams, hey, if you need a, I'm going to stick with virtual machine, uh, you're not going to write your own infrastructure as codes, but you're going to have to reference one of our template specs, which specifies a compliant virtual machine, which has specific properties, which has Microsoft Defender installed, which is automatically backupped, uh, locks are being shipped to the centralized thingy, et cetera, et cetera. So you can 
deliver them pre-built blocks and template specs are a building thing in Azure. But then of course, that is, you know, helping them do the right thing, which I think is where the, your main effort should be. But of course, you also want to try and prevent them from doing the wrong thing. So what you can do in Azure is you can write uh, Azure policy, which is basically also infrastructure as code that allows you to write if-then rules, very cruelly said. Um, if a resource, let's say a virtual machine, comes in and they want to try and open port... Uh, three three eight nine. All right, let's go with a Linux VM in port twenty two on the on the network interface. Then we're just gonna deny the deployment, so we can put in guide rails to prevent them from doing things that are not necessarily very smart. I feel like my users would outsmart awesome. me in like a minute with that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's good to have. It's good to know that you can still do it. You can still do it. So <laughs> you can do with with policy. You can do different things. Like if somebody does something that I don't like, I just want to have it on the on the audit list. Then what I sometimes call the naughty list, and I can you know go to people and say, hey, why are you doing that? And maybe they have a very good reason, and then I can you know create an exemption from the policy, or maybe I can I can go in there and, and teach them a little bit about opening port 28, uh, 22 to, to the old internet. So that's possible. You can also deny it. So if that deployment comes in, just deny. But that's not very <laughs> enabling for end teams. So I have a follow-up question on that. So w- when you're working this way, and a chapter in your book is about building a CI-CD pipeline for infrastructure using Azure DevOps, and when leveraging ARM templates or bicep templates. Um, my question to you is, what do you recommend in terms of how to test my infrastructure's code? Because, you know, <laughs> so do you recommend having separate accounts or separate entities in an account? Uh, how to test my infrastructure's code? Well, what we do in the book, in, in that cha- there's actually a chapter in the book on, on testing the infrastructure's code. And what we do in, in that chapter is that we kind of compare it with uh, testing your regular code. So it means that we talk a bit about unit tests, integration tests, end-to-end tests, etc. And we give a few examples on how to uh, how, how to translate what you know about unit tests for code into what you could do in terms of unit tests on, on infrastructure as code, on, on ARM templates, on, on BICEP. And so there's, there's, there's various things you can do. There's tooling available that can check, sorry, Henry, your infrastructure as code for best practices. <laughs> yeah. And then flag your infrastructure, parts of your infrastructure that, that aren't kind of compliant with that, that best practice. You can even use that in your build pipeline. So if you would run that test in your build pipeline, uh, you would do something that you shouldn't, then your build would fail and the deployment wouldn't continue and you would not deploy that to, to any environment. But you can also go a step further and, for example, use Pester which is a testing framework for PowerShell. You could actually use Pester to to test your infrastructure to write uh, tests against it. So there's various options that you uh, that you can use both from your local machine, running on your local machine, just targeting the templates themselves, but also targeting the actual state in Azure, the actual infrastructure that has been created. To, to test if it has been created like you wanted it to be, and also, for example, test if it's secure and compliant, etc. Is there a testing framework? The way that, uh, I guess, Terraform has TerraTest and BATS, I guess, when all else fails. Is there something like that for BICEP? No, but BICEP is actually still pretty new. So what you see is that a 
few of the tools that are available to do uh, to do some testing against ARM templates isn't available yet for for Bicep. But it, so that there, and that also there isn't a specific testing framework for it. There is some tooling that that you can run against your templates, and there is like I said, Pest that allows you to write tests yourself. Uh, cool. I think it's a by the way, it's a good, great opportunity for people who look to, you know, join on the open source. Uh, train and go and contribute it seems like bicep is going to be the next generation so if you want to do by test or whatever you want to call it <laughs> i guess you can uh, coin the the next tester and it's kind of nice you can get a lot of github stars you know it's it's i always like doing this stuff identifying a new technology yeah there's definitely space <laughs> amazing I don't know. I was just wondering, are you guys kind of seeing any sort of particular preference that people have in terms of kind of how they're organizing their companies or their teams? Because I feel like there's just been this pendulum that swings back and forth where it's like, okay, we're going to have this one team, you know, sort of like an old school IT department that's going to manage all of our DevOps and sysadmin and all that kind of stuff. And then all the other groups are going to go and talk to them. And then over time, the other groups get sick of that. And they're like, well, no, I'm going to hire my own admin. And so then like the pendulum swings that way. And then eventually they get sick of paying that person. And then, you know, the pendulum goes, you know, back, forth, back, forth. Are you guys seeing any kind of resolution or is it just uh, whatever people are most tired of at the time we do the the opposite thing? I think it's a very, very hard discussion. And I think it's not, neither are, uh, you know, absolutely wrong or absolutely um, good. I think both models align with different values. For example, you know, decentralizing everything aligns with very fast change, very fast uh, delivery, high efficiency, but maybe a bit, uh, sorry, high effectiveness, uh, but lower efficiency. If we centralize certain things, we will get a higher efficiency, but maybe that might just slow down the rate of change. So depending on the business outcomes or maybe the characteristics that you want out of your software delivery as a uh, company dictates which model works best. If you have a very stable infrastructure that almost never changes do you really want to have that managed by 20 people distributed over over 10 teams spending two half days on it or do you want to bring that into a centralized team with three or four specialized people but if it changes very rapidly due to changes from the the applications that run on it maybe you want to bring the person maintaining the infrastructure close to the person uh, writing the code so i think it depends on your Context. Sorry. It can also actually be a be a combination of the of the two. What I what I also see in companies is that if they, for example, start to use AKS, which is the, the, the Kubernetes version in the, the managed Kubernetes service in Azure, or they use other expensive services, for example, there's in Azure there's an uh, API management service, which is uh, really expensive. Then what I also see is that they have a central team managing those central services like AKS, for example. AKS, although it's a managed service, it's still pretty hard to maintain. You still need to know a lot about Kubernetes to actually maintain that service. So something like AKS could be maintained and managed by a central team, and then the separate DevOps teams can deploy their applications to it and can create any other necessary infrastructure like databases or or, or storage that they need for that particular application. Then you both have the benefit of having a central team with the deep knowledge of, for example, Kubernetes, or saving a bit of money because you can centralize a particular service, but still also also have the speed of your own DevOps team being able to make 
the changes to their own infrastructure. Yeah, you're basically talk, basically talking about I think internal platforms or internal platform teams. I think uh, AKS is an example, but networking I think is another great example. It's very common to see a centralized network in Azure being managed by a single team, and then they create a like a point of connectivity or a point of presence where you know individual teams can connect. So they provide a platform that others can build upon. I think the trick just is don't add too many layers of internal platform teams because then you will get you know slow again as a company. Mm. One, maybe two. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. So to follow up on that, I, by the way, I experienced both sides where you have a centralized team that manages and that you have the internal teams. I also saw companies that have like the champion approach where there's a centralized team, but they're like champions inside each team that are like the ambassadors of this centralized team, like inside the application teams. And they're responsible for, for getting the knowledge and working with the centralized DevOps teams, but they know the applicative requirements for, from the software application teams, uh, which I think is, is a great model. But to follow up on that, we're talking about ARM templates and infrastructure as code. My question to you, you know, the way I look at it is like, almost like thinking about autonomous cars. And I'll tell you why. I think that riding on a, like on a road where everyone's a driver, it's one thing. Riding on a road where it is 100% automatic, it's another thing. And a third thing is when you have autonomous vehicles and you have regular drivers, which is the worst thing ever because it's the hardest for all sides. This is, by the way, why I think that autonomous driving will, will start with like dedicated roads. But we can talk about it in a different podcast. So in this podcast, what I want to ask is, is how do you recommend people co- cope with that? Because maybe I want to start using ARM templates, but if in my account, other people don't use ARM templates and they go and point on things in the portal, it can, you know, destroy my work and, and make it really hard. So do you recommend every team to have a different account, every application? Do, do, should I define an account as this is an only automatically managed account? How so do you first see of all, this? the ones using infrastructure as code will always win. If somebody is going into the portal making manual changes, they will see them, you know, automatically going away whenever there is a new a new deployment from the infrastructure as code. So I think there is a natural natural move towards infrastructure as code then. I think in, in, if you're if you're working with that, you will probably have some kind of architecture in your cloud environment. Talking about about Azure, I think subscription democratization is quite common right now. So if you're an application team, there you go. There you have your your own Azure subscription. You can create whatever you want there. We might pre-provision a number of things that you cannot touch anymore using blueprints. Um, but you know, it's for you. You decide if you want to do infrastructure as code or if you want to do the manual thing. And of course, you know, architects are going to come in 
they're modern architects. They're not dictating. They're just sharing a, a better approach uh, for the future. And then everybody can, you know, dr- jump onto the wagon when they want to. But I think you should have very clear boundaries between application teams so that people know, does this belong to me or does it not? And then as an application team, if you get a subscription, which is, I think, really cool, because then within the subscriptions, you can create resource groups where the resources go. So you are still, you have like an in-between layer that you can use for your own groupings. So maybe if you want to slowly move from manual managing to managing using infrastructure's code, as a team, I can decide, hey, I'm going to create these three resource groups and I'm going to manage them using infrastructure's code where we still do things the old way in the remaining uh, resource groups. I think that's the way, strong compartmentization. I like it. It's nice. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to do that in AWS, although like I think they recently released something that I was looking at to help you kind of like compartmentalize your resources a bit better. In, in Azure, we have the subscription and on top above the subscription, we have management groups, which is really cool for policy and, you know, people with suits. Uh, but if you're, if you're an application team in the past, I think you would, you know, you would back for a resource group at your administrator, which was really bad because you didn't have a grouping thingy yourself. But now that just giving everybody a subscription is much more common, you get this grouping thingy as an application team yourself as well, I think, which is really powerful. So you can, you know, recognize different parts of your architecture yourself, maybe um, group things by life cycle. That's really helpful. And also it has a great side effect that in Azure, many limits are per subscription. So as everybody gets their own subscription, they get their own limits. So if you don't share a subscription between teams, one team cannot create, you know, 242 storage accounts. And then when the other team tries to create the ninth one, uh, they get denied because there is a limit of 250. So everybody, their own subscription would win. I would call that the best practice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. I'm defeated. Okay. <laughs> so my question is, is regarding, I call it the real world. So it's great talking about the, as you call it, the plain vanilla best practice, what you should do. And, and like you say, what should you do? You should use ARM templates or maybe start with bicep templates. But the, the reality is you come to a place and there is a mess and there are like 17 accounts and maybe some have some automation, some don't have. So what are your those don't and do's and like, how do you recommend I migrate all of my resources to an infrastructure as code model? Should I rewrite it? Are there tools that can like generate auto generate the templates for me? Like what should I do as an organization that is currently running and wants to replicate their uh, setup into an infrastructure as code one? I would say you actually have a, a, a few options there. If you go into the Azure portal, for example, then you can act, then you can, for example, export ARM templates. Right? That means that you can actually mm. export the current state of your infrastructure. So that could be a starting point. And I say starting point because the templates that you export aren't that readable. And they are ARM templates. There isn't an option yet to export bicep templates. So what you probably don't want to mm. do is export the ARM template and then decompile that or compile it into a bicep template. You actually can do that. You can do that using the bicep uh, CLI. You can give it an ARM template and then we'll create the bicep template for you. So that's a pretty quick way to to get from something that you have in the Azure portal running to a bicep template. But then you would still have to do some manual work to make it a bit more readable, make it a bit more make it a bit nicer, etc. And more concise um, especially, I think one of the downsides of exporting is that you will also get all the default values for all the default properties. 
So in, normally when you, I don't know, create an app service, you will probably have like 20, 25 properties that you want to specify. But if you get all the defaults, I think it's going to be five or six pages long. Um, and if you use, well, nobody specifies the defaults, right? So you, you want to strip them manually, which, which is painful. Yeah. I think there's one important step before that, and that's creating the boundaries. If you have an environment which is like free for all, uh, you want to put in straight boundaries and say, hey, so this this part that's now managed by infrastructure as code can touch this. And then, you know, expand those boundaries or, or add uh, specific places. And maybe don't try to uh, do this thing that we as developers or engineers are inclined to do. Just change everything, but, you know, have a vision on what it should be and only touch the parts where there is also a business case for touching it and not just do everything because you feel it's like the newest and greatest ID. That's my favorite thing to do, though. I really like that there is an introspection because, you know, sometimes that does happen in the real world that I'm sitting here looking at this cool new framework that I want to adopt. And I can't because there's no way to bring in like my existing data, you know, into that framework. So I really like that it has that. That's great. Yeah, what you, what you can always do is because, again, the, the, the state is actually in Azure. So what you can always do is create a new bicep template, but actually deploy that over your existing resources. So you can kind of start from scratch and then deploy it over something that already exists and then change what you already had. And then you can actually start out with a small template, which just contains the things that you want to change opposed to the default values that Henry just mentioned. And then maybe it's at this point very good to point out that there are uh, multiple ways to deploy a template in Azure. And one of those is called the what if deployment mode. And instead of actually deploying the template, it is going to show you what is going to change by the deployment. And if you have never used a template before for a certain set of resources, what if can really help you, um, you know, weed out one or two unintended outcomes before you do the actual thing? And also test environments, by the way, are really good. Um, but if you haven't been using infrastructure as code for a while, you might ask yourself how representative is your test infrastructure for your production infrastructure they will drift a lot it's uh you know it's a whole thing there are people call it playing theater you know when you, you try to make staging as production i think that by using infrastructure as code you can get very 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 close rather than you know trying to manually do it but uh, it's a good question. You know, there are many people today who try to test things when they're live. So like if we think about things like launch darkly and the feature flags, where like you silently deploy a new feature that is deployed to 0% of your traffic, and then you slowly try deploy it. I can think about it from the application side. It's kind of hard for me to grasp this as the infrastructure side or the cloud side i i don't see an equivalent well, there there are there are things what i've seen it once where they uh they had a, a load balancer kind of thingy that was centralized by a central team let's call them a platform team because that's hip and then application teams could just completely redeploy their whole stack on a completely different location than their current production environment they so they redeployed it as a test environment. They connected it to their to test database servers, whatever. They run their tests, whatever. And once they were very satisfied with that installation of the compute layer, they would switch it over to the production database and then start routing production traffic to it. So instead of packing mm. the deployment package and moving that to different environments, they actually promote the whole environment. Don't forget to redirect it to the correct databases. 
don't forget to make sure that you don't have any traffic going through it when you drag this to the other databases. Um, make sure that you coordinate very well with the platform team that does the load balancer and redirects the traffic. If they're really cool, they're going to let you use infrastructure as code to update the load balancer configuration. But I think that's a thing. And then if you're, you want to push a thought further, you can, you can use that infrastructure and treat it as immutable. So we're just going to build it, put stuff on it, test it, promote it to be the production environment. And then once it's done, we're not going to try and do patches there. We're not going to do things that make it unstable. We're just going to disregard it once it's not serving any traffic anymore. But maybe that's a very futuristic thought. No, I couldn't say that. I don't think so. It's no, possible. No. You see that on Kubernetes, like the rolling deployments where, so say I have a Helm chart and then I need to upgrade it. I'll deploy my upgrade, but I just won't have the load balancer pointing to the upgrade. I'll let it sit there and, you know, bake. And then I'll test it a bit and hammer on it and make sure that it's okay. And then I'll change the load balancer and the database and all the other things. And the Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the database. <laughs> oh, man, I have a lot of things to think about now. <laughs> it, it can be done with centralized configuration management solutions like console or ETCD, or you can change the pointers. But, you know, we talked about AKS and Kubernetes several times in this podcast, and I wanted to ask you, how do you see them working together, ARM and BICEP templates and the Kubernetes world? Because... But by the way, Kubernetes is all infrastructure as code. You cannot not do infrastructure as code, right? So how do you see them play along? And which part should we still do with Bicep and, and ARM? And which part should we move on and delegate to Helm and Kubernetes? So I'll give Aaron some time to think because he has actual real-world experience with Kubernetes. I don't. So I think <laughs> Kubernetes is used in a lot of locations where it's not necessarily the best tool for the job, but it's used because it's, you know, hip and happening. What I do know is that Bicep will get extension points for, you know, targeting things beyond your Azure environment. They're talking about, for example, the Azure Active Directory, mm. which has always been a pain in the backside that, that ARM templates couldn't manage your Azure Active Directory. Uh, and there has also been talk of, you know, targeting your Kubernetes environments from Bicep. So that's one thing. And now over to somebody that actually uses Kubernetes or has used Kubernetes at least once. Yeah, I'm actually using it right now at my current assignment. Yeah, you are right. Currently, you you use Bicep to manage the infrastructure, and then you still need your regular tools to do your work in Kubernetes itself. And as Henry points out, that is going to change. But at this point in time, you, you create your infrastructure, the, the AKS cluster, etc., using uh, Bicep or ARM templates if you really want to and then do the actual deployment using Helm charts, et cetera. Is there kind of this concept, like Terraform has of a provider? So, you know, for example, if I'm deploying a Kubernetes cluster on AWS, I'll use the, you know, I'll use the EKS service. And then when I need to handle my domain names, I'll use the AWS route, whatever that is. You know, so those are all through the AWS provider. And then when I need to deploy a Helm configuration, then I use the Helm provider. So it has these different hookins, I suppose, for talking to these different external services. And I don't know how many there are, but will there be a... Is that concept already there? Maybe will there be some kind of plugin architecture to say, okay, we need to talk. We need to talk to this other provider. In in Azure, we have the notion of a of a resource provider. Um, so whenever you create a resource, uh, let's say the infamous virtual machine, it is Microsoft.compute slash virtual machine, which is the type of that resource. So that Microsoft.compute is the resource provider. And so actually what ARM will do, it will take your request and reroute it basically to the to the 
team or teams or product group that's responsible for you know the compute stuff in Azure. And there is Microsoft.web, which holds App Service and uh, Service Farm for running App Service and Configurate. So there is this resource provider thingy in Azure, um, but all the resource providers are internally uh, internal to, to Azure only. This might change, but I don't know if it will. No. So, so oh. currently you don't have, like you have in, in, in Terraform, that you have all these providers for different kind of things. Your DNS provider uh, and, and the Google Cloud, AWS, you don't have that in, in Bicep or Azure. What you can do, if you do need to call into some other system, for example, is that you can run a piece of PowerShell, for example, from Bicep. So you could trigger the, the execution of a PowerShell script from Bicep. So you can, so, so for example, what I had to do in, in one particular assignment was deploy some infrastructure on Azure, but we were, use, we were using a firewall that w- did not run on Azure, but to open ports and to actually manage that firewall, we could run a piece of PowerShell to actually call out to that firewall and do a bit of change during the infrastructure deployment. So that was really nice. And you still have one deployment, one one source of truth in source control, and such, and one, one deployment, uh, but you can still do things in other systems using PowerShell or the Azure CLI. Yeah, what's maybe good to point out about the resource providers I mentioned, they are built into to Azure. It's not like you import one or you you, you you take one in you declare I want to use this resource provider. They're all already available in Azure. They're built in. You don't need to import them, but you cannot bring your own either, like you could for Terraform, where you can create your own providers if you want to. I think it's a very important part, and I think that branching out and connecting to external resources and also obviously things from the Cloud Native Foundation is obvious, but you know, many organizations today, they work with Azure and GCP and AWS and some backbone they have in some pop with some servers, and it's very common, and and at the end of the day, if you as, an, as a team need to know like cloud formation and ARM and the GCP one. And then you have stuff with, <laughs> you're laughing, stuff with, <laughs> with, with the Kubernetes. So maybe having a solution that is actually has an abstraction layer on top of them is not such a bad idea. I don't think so. So if you're using only Azure, I would be inclined to not use Terraform because it's another tool. It's not a layer for abstraction. It, 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 it comes with downsides in this single cloud approach. But you have a very valid point, which is the reason that extensibility points are being brought onto, onto Bicep. And you know, thinking out loud, I wouldn't be surprised if people you know, started building in support for parts of Amazon, uh, AWS, or GCP, or IBM, Oracle, Alibaba, I don't know, all these clouds that we have. I, I see that happening. Because nobody, uh, I, I read a, an interesting uh, point of view uh, lately, nobody will stay single cloud if you're a reasonably sized company. At some point, you will acquire someone or be acquired by somebody else. And all of a sudden, boom, you're multi-cloud, even though your strategy was to never, ever, yep. ever go uh, multi-cloud. Um, so this is a real problem in the real world. This thing happened to me, and we ended up with resource controls, GitHub, GitLab, and Bitbucket. <laughs> think about so, that. And some SVN legacy. I, I think that's m- more easy. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to complain about something. <laughs> make an actual comment. <laughs> I think that's more easy to resolve than having deployments in more, more than one cloud. Because if everything is just Git under the hood, people will have their preferences, but maybe you can smash them all into 
One Direction. You'd be surprised. And, and everyone uses a different CI-CD solution. It is hooked up directly to the source control that is hooked up directly to deploying it some other cloud. And it's all like glued up together. It's a spaghetti yeah, then mess, it, Then it man. becomes more complicated. So I've, I've worked at a fairly large financial constitution, uh, institution, sorry, where we had to move a thousand teams from, I think, a number of source control systems, a number of CICD systems, a number of relic orchestrates onto one solution. Um, it, it took a department and a year and a half. Yep, makes sense. I believe it. Was it was a very successful migration, by the way, which is something I'm so happy about. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, uh, you guys were touching a bit earlier on this idea of having infrastructure templates, and I'm seeing those around more and more, which I think is really interesting because, you know, like for the cloud, there's so many of these different services, but you have to actually bring them together to create something interesting. So are you guys seeing any, like, especially interesting, I don't know, like recipes or templates or anything like that that are out there for some really cool use cases? I know... I think it's Microsoft has the new, has like a new climatology or geology project, right? So maybe something for that. Or, I don't know. Just interesting projects that might, I don't, that might not be a thing. Like I haven't slept a lot lately. Don't maybe don't quote me on that one, but no. <laughs> so Just, I, are you I guys think a lot any of, interesting template resources. I think Microsoft publishes their own, you know, getting started. Um, I think there are like seven or 800 templates that, you know, ex- contain a lot of examples. I am not aware of any like publicized examples. I think a lot of companies also keep things internal because you don't really want to expose the configuration of your infrastructure, I guess. But what I see within companies is that they are packaging and redistributing for two reasons. Uh, First of all, like reusable components, you know, just to work smarter. Like, for example, if I want to run a web app, I'm probably going to need an app service plan. I'm probably going to need an app service. I might use a SQL database and I may use a service bus messaging. I can wrap it into a template and put it out there like, here, that's ready to go. Go for it. And the other angle is compliancy. So I don't want you to use this virtual machine out of the box. I want you to use this virtual machine configuration. I don't mind if you like it, you have to use it. And if you want to use a storage account, which I don't think has that many properties, but we're still going to dictate this template to you because it's going to close off HTTP, it's going to enforce HTTPS, it's going to enforce encryption address, and a number of things. Those are the two things I see, but it's only within companies, not like in the open, but I might be blind. No, I'm, I don't know of any, but the documentation by Microsoft is actually pretty good these days. If you uh, look into any doc kind of any documentation on, on the infrastructure on Azure, then there's almost all the time there's an example on how to build that stuff. And then there's links to how to do it using the Azure CLI PowerShell, but also how to use the, how to, to build that infrastructure using ARM templates or uh, preferably uh, Bicep. So whenever you do read about some kind of infrastructure, there's always a link pointing you to some templates and some examples on how to deploy that. I was just wondering, because I remember when I got started with the cloud, I was trying to just deploy like a LAMP server. I was like, what's something really easy, you know, that I can just deploy and just go and just yeah, getting set up with that. I think it took me like a week or, you know, something kind of ridiculous now. But uh, I think now it's much easier and there's much more of these kind of pre-configured templates to help you along. Yeah. Yeah. What's really easy about this documentation from Microsoft and the, the templates they offer them there is that it's always a complete set. I mean, you can have, templates to deploy individual 
things, but it's much more, much more useful to see a template that actually deploys a complete set of infrastructure to see how it combines together and how it, how it talks to each other, et cetera. Um, and that gets better and better. Cool. Awesome. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of the time that we have. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that we ought to make sure that we hit before we do picks? All right, let's do some picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Shimon, do you want to start us off with picks? Okay, so it's going to be an easy one. <laughs> As you all know, there was a small incident that happened recently. You might have heard about it. It involved a, a very small company. But of course, I'm talking about the Facebook and Instagram and, and the outage that, that happened. And I want to, my tech pick about it is sort of like my epiphany here is because we're talking about infrastructure as code and I need to configure everything and test everything. And actually in the official uh, report that the VP of infrastructure of Facebook uh, stated that this was a misconfiguration that disconnected their BGP networking. And in my mind, what I want to say is that my tech pick in that regard is to no matter which infrastructure as code tool you're using, it is code and you should test it and you should build guardrails. And Henry talked about policies that exist in Azure. It doesn't matter if you use solutions like Open Policy Agent, the ERM policies, the tree for Kubernetes, I don't know, Pulumi. There, there are so many things. Just don't forget that you also need to test it. And because this is, at the end of the day, one of the most critical paths in your company, because if you have a code in your application, the blast radius might be big, but in many times it's sort of contained. But if you have a huge problem with your infrastructure as code, it might cause an entire outage. So it's a point I had to, talk, to, point, to talk about because, you know, it's the news of the week. Makes sense. Well, and I keep hearing about like uh, blameless postmortems. But everybody knows who screwed up yeah. that config, right? Over on that team. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so whoever it is, like Steve's in the news, right? 
And Steve is going to hear about it for the next six months. Anyway, <laughs> Jillian, what are your picks? Uh, I was just thinking about the walk of shame back into the office. If anybody's ever still going in the office, that must be terrible for those guys. Um, all right, we're moving on. Yeah, so I've been reading a set of graphic novels called Amulet with my oldest daughter. And I think they're for like a middle school range. She's 10 and they're the kids in the story are 10. But um, it's really fun. It's really good. And it's a finished series, which is really nice because I've been burned so many times on starting series that, you know, might never actually be finished. And so I have a new rule now that I only start ones that have already been completed. But it's really good. I don't think I've really read a lot of graphic novels. I used to read a lot of comics that were, I don't know, like not this nice from what I remembered. It has like fully colored, nice and glossy. I can read it on my iPad with nice big font. So I just really like those. The series is called Amulet. Go read them. They're fun. Very cool. I'm going to throw out a couple of books that I've been reading and then just another kind of uh, personal note pick. So the the two books that I'm going to pick, the first one is The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. And he just talks about how sort of smaller, seemingly possible steps add up to things that are outcomes that feel impossible. You know, it's like, oh, I I could never do that. And then you step by step get there. And he talks about the psychology of it and brain science. And anyway, it it went a little deep for me. I actually need to go back and reread parts of it. But it was really, really, really good. The other one that I'm reading is it's called X by John Bevere. And it's more of a kind of a Christian focused. But what it really is, is it's about, hey, you have a calling in life. And as you go out and you execute on that calling and multiply your influence in other people's lives, you can make a difference. And I feel like that really, anyway, it, it lines up with where I'm at. So I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to pick that. And then the last pick that I have. So last week, I wasn't on the show because we were down in my wife's hometown because her stepfather passed away. And while we were there, I was on an app called Family Tree. It's part of Family Search. If you go to familysearch.org, you can check that out. But a lot of my family history is in Family Search because uh, Family Search is put together by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, of which I and many of my ancestors are members. Anyway, so I was looking through it and I found out that my great 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 grandparents are actually buried in that same town. And this is a little teeny town in the middle of eastern Utah. I mean, there's wow, there if there are a 2,000 people in that town, I would be shocked, you know. So my 10-year-old was kind of struggling with losing his grandpa. So we we went out to the cemetery and we were uh, we went and kind of saw the gravesite one more time. And then we just walked across the cemetery and found their headstones. Headstones are 100-something years old, which was really cool. And then we looked it up on the app again and we thought, well, are there any other relatives that are they're, that are buried around here, and it turned out that my great 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 grandmother is also buried out there in an even smaller town, a half hour away. And so we drove out there and wow. found her headstone as well. Most of the rest of my family on that side of the family actually live further south in a bunch of tiny towns in southern Utah. But that's where my grandpa grew up. But anyway, so it was kind of a fun trip. So if you're looking for family history and and finding a way to connect, that's always really interesting to see. Okay. You know, where, where did these people live? Where'd they come from? What's the story here? Right. Cause, uh, and I'm still trying to figure that, that one out. Cause my great, great, great grandmother's buried in 
in Farron, Utah, which is this little teeny town. But her husband, my great, great, great grandfather is buried down in Thurber, which is, like I said, further south. He died like 30 years before her. And so it's like, okay, well, did she move up here with one of her kids or is there something else, you know? Because I couldn't find any other family there. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the story is. So I'm kind of looking at that. But anyway, so I probably have like a branches of the family over in that area. But uh, anyway, it was just fun, fun experience. So I'm going to shout out about all of that. Erwin, do you want to do some picks? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is that, um, as you might know, I moved to a different company quite recently. Uh, and one of the um, uh, one of the mission values that they have is is, is is people first. Every company probably says that, but they they kind of seem to really do it. Uh, and so we, aside from tech, we also spend a lot of time on the team and actually ourselves. And in one of the sessions that we recently had, it struck me that every studying thing I've been doing in the past always was about tech. And always was about learning something new uh, in Azure, .NET, whatever. Whatever was about me myself. So I decided to to change that and to do a bit of studying on me. So I ordered a book. It's called The Six Minute Diary by a German author, Dominic Spenst. I I just started this week, so I'm not entirely sure what it's gonna 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 bring me. But it's going to be a completely new experience for me to um, to study something that's not tech related. Cool. How about you, Henry? Cool. Maybe something to put out there. Um, I, I transferred to a new job a couple of months ago. And I think in, in this job and also in the, the few jobs before, one of the things that I noted, noticed and I think that we should change, all of us, is that in IT, we seem to be terribly bad at educating people and getting them ready for the, you know, the remainder of the career. Feels like we, you know, we bring in people that are talented. We just give them a seat. We give them a computer and we say like, good luck. And then when, whenever they put out their first PR, we're going to like bash them for not knowing design patterns. <laughs> um, and it might be that I've just been in the bad contexts, but I feel that as a company, we could oh. do better at mentoring people and junior engineers that come in. So if, if anything, I, I want to say maybe we should try and improve upon that as an industry to see how we can guide, coach, mentor people um, in the first years of the career. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to plus yeah. one that. Be nice, everybody. Like, play nice yeah. with the other children on the playground. You know, like, like take it down a notch. Maybe seven help notch. people along. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you all for coming. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.